I went for a run one morning. It was a Sunday morning with my sister. And we were running back along the canal path near our home in East London when I tripped I knew I'd broken something and I knew I was in serious pain. My sister and I didn't have our mobile phones with us, so we couldn't call an ambulance. Now, Sunday morning, deserted canal path in East London, not really anyone around. My life did completely change forever in that moment. Have you ever wondered how successful businesses and thought leaders keep landing those big media opportunities and keep the buzz going around what they're up to? It's not just by chance. They're all using the power of storytelling. I'm Nicola J. Rowley, and with over 25 years in the media as both a journalist and PR expert, I'm here to help you unlock the story potential for both you and your brand. Everything starts with a story. This is the Power of Storytelling podcast. Hello, hello. It's so good to have you with us today on the Power of Storytelling with me, Nicola J. Rowley. Now, when it comes to storytelling, one of the greatest ways we can impact both ours and other people's lives is through hope. Sharing our own powerful journey from point A to point B, providing inspiration that's going to resonate with others along the way. And that's why I'm delighted that I'm joined here today by my guest, who's an author, journalist, and speaker, it's Ella Dove. Now, she's not only the Lifestyle Deputy Features Editor for Red, Prima, and Good Housekeeping, but she's also the author of Five Steps happy. Ella, hi, it's brilliant to have you with us on The Power of Storytelling. Oh, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. When we look at your story, because you've been on quite a journey yourself, tell us about how everything really unfolded for you and changed. There was Because there was a point, wasn't there? There was a point like a definite point where everything changed for you? There was, yeah. So I, as you said, I'm a journalist and author. I was working in journalism. That's where I've always worked since I started my career. And it was in 2015 that my life changed forever. So I was actually, I was in my 20s, I was 25. I was having a really kind of busy, hectic life as people in their 20s do. I was out kind of every night at various launches, you know, that kind of hectic media world out and about. And I had a really shocking accident. So what happened was I went for a run one morning. It was a Sunday morning with my sister Uh, She's very into running. She's very, very sporty, does all sorts of half marathons and things. I am not, but I just like to keep fit and healthy as most of us do. So I went with her and we only went for a short run. It was probably it was probably only about 20 minutes or half an hour. And we were running back along the canal path near our home in East London when I tripped. Now, I knew straight away that it wasn't a normal trip. I knew that I'd done something really serious, but I didn't realize just how serious it was in that moment. I knew I'd broken something because I knew I couldn't get up and I knew I was in 
serious pain. But unfortunately, my sister and I didn't have our mobile phones with us. So we couldn't call an ambulance, which obviously I knew that I needed. So we had to wait for somebody to come along. Now, Sunday morning, deserted canal path in East London, not really anyone around. Eventually, someone did come along and phoned an ambulance. But then he actually hung up and told us he had a train to catch and he had to go. So he left us there, which was crazy. I guess if you see someone who's just tripped over, you don't necessarily think it's a serious, that's all I can kind of think, you know, he probably didn't realise it was as serious as it actually was. Anyway, we were late, well, I was laying there on the ground. I, I can't tell you how long I was laying there. People always ask me, and I think trauma does strange things to your brain. It's kind of blocked it out. But Eventually, another girl came along and she phoned an ambulance and stayed with us. And I was taken to hospital where it was quickly discovered that I had broken my leg. I'd broken my knee really severely, but as well as the fracture, I'd also dislocated my knee. And so the combination of those injuries cut the blood off to my foot. So it cut the circulation off and it's called, it's called compartment syndrome where the blood kind of gathers in a certain part of the body and the circulation is cut off. So obviously, really serious. I was rushed to 12-hour operation, which was the first of about eight or nine operations. And in that operation, they tried to take veins from my good leg, my left leg, and put them into my right leg to restart the circulation. And they did actually, over the next few days, try and do that three times to the point where I was in intensive care. And uh, they kind of said after the third operation, there was a pulse in my right foot, but it was very, very weak. And the surgeon basically said, it's it's getting kind of dangerous for you now. You're at risk of contracting, you know, infections such as sepsis, which can obviously be life-threatening. So we're going to have to amputate your leg. And so at the age of 25, I became a baloney amputee. So that's a that's a very whistle stop tour of a very big story. But yes, you're right. My life did completely change forever in that moment. What was actually going through your mind at that point? Like you say, you're you're 25. You're in the prime of your life. You're used to going to lots of parties, being out and about, and everything else. And all of a sudden, everything has changed. Literally, just like that. In that one sentence, really, because up until that point, you still had hope that the surgeon was going to come through, the doctors were going to come through, everything was going to be okay. Yeah, I know. And in that moment, it was, to be honest, a bit of a blur. I mean, I can't even tell you how I felt. I think I just was in complete shock. And it's only kind of in the sort of weeks and months that followed that conversation and obviously the surgery that then followed it, that I kind of slowly learned to come to terms with it. And certainly... I mean, I have certain images that stay with me. Like I really remember going down, being taken down to the anaesthetic room and looking at my right foot and knowing that was the last time I was going to see my right foot just before I was put to sleep. Things like that just really stay with you. And, you know, I can tell you now my toenails were painted red. Really weird little details that I remember. But yeah, I mean, it's been a real kind of journey to self-acceptance I guess you know obviously my whole life changed I was in a wheelchair for four and a half months and because I obviously couldn't get a prosthetic leg until my fracture had healed so my knee essentially had to be rebuilt I had a kind of 
a cage on my leg with pins sort of piecing my bones back together so until that was gone I couldn't even start to learn to walk so you know whereas some amputees have the amputation and then it's straight off to a rehab center where they get a prosthetic leg for me I had this transition where I was a wheelchair user I had to move back with my parents obviously no one really thinks they're going to do that in their mid-20s when they've left home so that was a whole other thing to navigate um and then I eventually after my knee healed sufficiently I went to an amputee rehabilitation center where I stayed for five weeks and that was when I got my first prosthetic leg and when you're there it's a kind of one-stop shop so you have intensive physiotherapy twice a day you have occupational therapy there's a psychotherapist there that's a whole separate thing at that point I said no to that because I felt like I in inverted commas wasn't the sort of person that needed therapy which is obviously ridiculous So yeah, it was a real kind of, yeah, I mean, I keep saying learning curve, but it was a real learning curve, you know, learning to walk again at the age of 25, something that comes naturally to us our whole lives, you know, for 25 years. And then suddenly having to trust this, you know, bit of carbon fiber and metal that's attached to my leg and think, gosh, is this going to hold my weight? Like, you know, how have I got the balance for this? Yeah. So I, I eventually, it was probably about It was over a year until I was walking without aid. I had crutches for a long time and then I had two walking sticks and then I had one walking stick. So it was probably, yeah, just over a year until I kind of was confidently able to walk around the streets without any kind of walking aid. So yeah, long time, (laughs) very long process. And it sounds like it was quite a transition as well to go from, you know, each stage, it had to be a transition to get you back and up and walking again. When you did finally walk down the street, whether that was with your walking sticks or, you know, your crutches or however, did you feel that people were looking at you or were you okay with it? You were just kind of like, no, this is it. I've accepted this is now my reality. Yeah, people, I mean, people definitely do even now look because my prosthetic leg, the one I wear day to day, is very obviously a prosthetic leg. I mean, you can get them. I have got a realistic one where you wouldn't know that I was wearing a prosthetic leg at all because it's kind of matched to my skin tone and things like that. But the one I wear day to day, I kind of, I've chosen comfort over kind of the aesthetics of it, really. You know, it's a lot lighter because it's made of carbon fiber. So, and the foot I've got is very springy so it means you know I can run for a bus or whatever but yeah I did notice certainly in those early days now I think it does still happen but I don't I'm almost a bit oblivious to it you know like my fiance or my sister will say oh that person was really staring at you and I'll say oh were they I kind of just it's always like I've got used to it but yeah no and when and at the beginning it was hard I do actually think it was probably harder when people stared at me in the wheelchair though than when people stared at me with my leg and I think that's because When people stare at my prosthetic leg, or at least in the beginning, it's the same feeling that I have now when I'm running on a running blade, which is this sense of pride and kind of pride at how far I've come. And like, yes, I'm living my life and I'm doing this. And I like to think that people are staring because they're impressed rather than because they're sort of judging me. That's at least how I frame it in my head. And most of the time, I'm sure that is the case, but I'm sure there are people that are like, well, she looks weird. But yeah, whereas when I was in the wheelchair, It was actually a height thing. And I'm sure many wheelchair users will be familiar with this, but it was like people literally looking down on you. And there's something kind of 
symbolic in that, you know, they're literally looking down at you. And therefore, emotionally, if you're in a bad place, it's very easy to make the jump that, oh, they're looking down on me, you know, figuratively speaking as well. Yeah. And children as well. Children are very unpredictable. And now I love it when they ask me things. But back then, I was very fragile. And, you know, the slightest comment or some children once when I was in the wheelchair were running in the supermarket were running around kind of pretending to shoot me with guns as if I was like a monster coming towards them. And obviously, like, that's just child play. But at the time, I was I almost had a panic attack. And I remember saying to my dad, who was pushing the wheelchair, just get me out of here now, get me out of here now. So yeah, I kind of I I had to really sort of build up thick skin, I guess, because you know, frankly, like the world is still not accessible enough or inclusive enough. I mean, we're making that pardon the pun making strides, but there's obviously still so much more to be done. And, you know, I think disabled people do have to build up, sadly, this level of kind of, yeah, toughness, really, in order to sort of cope with with that and with people's kind of staring or judgments or yeah, anything like that. Now, you've touched on it, like quite a few times when you were just talking about your mental well-being and how you actually get from that point where you're almost having a panic attack in the wheelchair in the in the supermarket to actually are they staring hadn't noticed it's like that self-acceptance but it's a journey that you had to go on wasn't it mm, yeah definitely i mean as i say for a long time i kind of said you know, I'd never had therapy before. Very lucky that I've always been quite, you know, had good mental health. I've never suffered in that way. So when this happened, I kind of just thought, oh, I'll be fine. I don't need therapy. And I think looking back, actually what was happening was I was so focused on my physical recovery and I was so focused on, I've got to learn to walk and then I've got to learn to run and, you know, I've got to do my commute or practice escalators or whatever the goals I had were. There were sort of, you know, lots of smaller and also bigger goals. And I was so focused on those that I completely neglected my mental health. And as a result, it kind of suffered. I mean, it was, I remember quite near the beginning. So having said no to therapy at the rehab center, I then, you then, after you've kind of been discharged, you're assigned an outpatient, it's called a long-term condition center, where you then go for all of your prosthetic appointments. And there are several around the country, NHS ones. And when you're first, when you're first kind of like assigned there, they give, they have a kind of multidisciplinary meeting where there's a prosthetist, a physio, a doctor and a therapist. And I remember us all sitting in the room and the psychotherapist came up to me and said, you know, I'm here like, and again, I sort of was polite to her, but just kind of a bit dismissive. And it was honestly about a year later that I had sort of found her card again and decided to phone her. And as soon as I phoned her, she said, I knew you'd phone me eventually. And it was and it was so funny. I mean, obviously, she is a specialist amputee therapist. So she knows that journey that amputees go on. And it turned out, you know, I was kind of even in my first session, very sort of, I don't know, blase sort of saying, Oh, yeah, well, I was having these flashbacks. And like, I had this thing for a long time where just before I fell asleep, it was like I had to watch the accident happening, like on repeat, like it was a like it was a film that I had to watch before I could go to sleep. And that happened to me 
a long for a long time probably like over a year and actually like occasionally now I get it if normally if I'm like really stressed I occasionally get it now very rarely but sometimes anyway I just assumed that was kind of a part of my recovery and I sort of said to the therapist oh this has been happening but you know that's normal isn't it like it's just it's just a little bit of PTSD is what I said and she said Ella you can't have a little bit of PTSD like you have got PTSD <laughs> and I kind of just sort of looked at her like no I don't I'm not that I'm not again that I'm not that sort of person but having kind of them worked through and and had therapy sessions with her um and gone through acceptance commitment therapy which is similar-ish to CBT slightly different and sort of learned about it's all kind of based around values and learning what your core values are and once I'd kind of gone down that route and really sort of opened myself up I could see like oh yeah no that actually is PTSD I actually was suffering there like I you know I actually did need to do this work on myself and I kind of learned to sort of value my mental well-being in a way I've never had before really. Now you mentioned your fiance and I know that I was there when you delivered your TEDx talk about finding love. Obviously you were 25 at the time and you've just gone through this major life upheaval. How heavy did that actually play on your mind? Am I actually going to meet anyone that's going to accept me how I am now? Yeah, it was a huge thing. I mean, I'd been single for a really long time before that. And, you know, I'd kind of dabbled with the dating apps, but it had not really gone anywhere. So, yeah, it was a huge thing. And I I remember at one point when I was having a particularly low day, I mean, hospital was a real roller coaster of highs and lows. And the smallest things could trigger me, such as obviously sometimes they need to move people's beds around when more patients come in and people go out and so on. And I'd my bed had been moved from, I had my own room, I had a side room and I'd been moved onto a ward and something in my brain triggered, like was triggered by that. It was something about losing the security of having my own room and being on a ward with other patients. Anyway, I was a nightmare for a couple of days. And I was just, you know, I kept the curtains pulled around me in the hospital and I wouldn't talk to anyone. And I was probably quite rude to the clinicians, which is not me at all. I'm not that sort of person in any way. And on one of the days, one of the doctors came to see me, one of the consultants came to see me. And he's a trauma specialist consultant and, you know, had worked with veterans in Afghanistan and very, very experienced guy. And I remember him him just sitting on the end of my bed, probably not appropriate, but anyway, sitting on the end of my bed and just saying like, look, what's the matter? Like, what is it? And on that particular day, it was all around the fact that I would never find love and that no one would ever love me now that I had half my leg missing. And I, it all just sort of came out. And, and then I just was like, you know, no one's ever going to love me. And he just looked me in the eye and just said, not all men are shallow, Ella. And I, and that just really stayed with me. And obviously, yeah, I have now met someone. I mean, again, there, there was a whole host of highs and lows in dating, which we don't have time to go into now. I actually wrote a piece for Cosmo about that because there were just so many funny stories and also tricky stories. Like, you know, people sort of ghosting me and not replying when I told them I was an amputee as if, you know, oh, she's an amputee. Okay, no, like, let's count her out. There was a lot of that as well. But yes, I did eventually, after several frogs, meet George, um, who I'm now engaged to. We got engaged last year and getting married in July. So yeah, definitely a happy ending there. 
which is amazing. And what I love through your story, no matter, like you say, it's been a real roller coaster journey to get to the point where you are, but it feels like you've never given up on hope. You've held on to hope that, okay, that moment where that consultant sat on the edge of your bed and said, not all men are shallow, it kind of just sparked something. It's like, okay, maybe this could be my reality. Maybe I could be happy. And it is lovely to see that you are happy and that you're thriving and everything else. How important was it for you to have that hope throughout the whole journey? Oh, yeah. I think it's the most important thing, actually. I mean, I think yeah, without without hope, I am very, very lucky that I am quite a natural optimist. And like that natural optimism carried me through the darkest of times. You know, I'm now a peer mentor for other amputees through charity, the Limbless Association. And I have I have calls with other amputees who are right at the start of their journey. And it's easy to identify the people who have that sort of inner hope and self-belief and those who don't and with those who don't it I mean it's so it's so sad it's really really tough to work through and they are the people that suffer the most and you know I think having a kind of a a core sort of well a core value I guess of hope is yeah is so crucial for anything you know and that goes for me but also goes for whatever other people are going through you know whether that's a kind of well, physical journey like mine with a dash of mental health thrown in or see there I go again, or whether it's kind of, you know, whatever people are going through, having that, having that hope is, I I really think is the most, most important thing, definitely. And so if anyone's listening to this right now and they're thinking, wow, I mean, Ella, she has quite an incredible story, but I think for me, what you've actually managed to do is you've written the book um you're going out there you're helping others that are going through a similar journey that ripple effect from your journey and your story is now being felt on a on a wider basis and i think that it's really important that we do that because then we're able to impact other people's lives yeah definitely i think sharing well you know the power of storytelling is is absolutely crucial and and when it comes to kind of I'm doing a lot of work around disability awareness as well now in my company I've I'm heading up the disability network at Hearst UK where I work and you know and we we speak a lot about sort of storytelling and often it does take the you know the people who are sort of more confident in their stories to share their stories to encourage other people to come forward and share their stories so I am lucky that I do have a natural confidence. It probably is the journalist in me that, you know, I'm not afraid of talking, as you can tell. But I think in doing that, I almost feel like I've got a responsibility having that confidence and also having that hope and having come out the other side of my journey in a positive way. I do feel like now a sense of responsibility to encourage others to do the same. So, yeah, I'm really trying to do that as much as I can. And have you had anyone come to you and say, actually, thank you. Thank you for sharing your journey where you have been, because that has changed everything for me. Yeah, I have actually. When the book came out in 2019, I had quite a lot of messages on social media, people going through all sorts of things. And even now I hear of people who say, 
you know, I, I bought your book or I'm really lucky that that my local prosthetist centre and also a private prosthetic centre I go to, they both are really big champions of, of me and of my book. So actually like other amputees are still finding my book now, which is really, really lovely. You know, they've one of the places got a copy of it in the waiting room and often I'll get a message saying, oh, I'm just at this centre and I've picked up your book. And so, yeah, so it is the ripple effects are still ongoing and I'm really, really pleased and proud about that. I think it's amazing. And Ella, I think you're a complete inspiration and to be able to share your story with us today on the Power of Storytelling podcast, I'm hugely grateful to you. Um, Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So um, there you have it. Thank you for everyone at home or on the go for listening uh, to today's episode of The Power of Storytelling. It was quite a hard-hitting episode, but I just think it shows you that infinite power of hope. So if you have a similar story or a similar way that you've been able to harness hope, Perhaps you've been through something really quite difficult, but by sharing your story, you too can impact the lives of others. It's worth thinking about actually putting yourself out there and sharing the part of the story that, of course, you're happy to share. You don't have to share everything. Remember that it's really important. If you've enjoyed today's show, please hit that follow or subscribe button. It does wonders for passing on that message, creating that ripple effect so more people can find the power of storytelling organically. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about today, please drop me a line at nicola at njrpr.com. I read every email I get, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. I'd love to hear from you. I'm Nicola J. Rowley, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Power of Storytelling.